Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Part of the exciting thing here is we, we get continually surprised by the creative power of, of all of society. I think that word surprise, though, it's both exhilarating as well as terrifying That's to for people. Sure. I think people should be happy that we're a little bit scared of this. I think people should be You're happy. a little bit scared. A little bit, yeah, You of personally. Course. I, I think if I said I were not, you should either not trust me or be very unhappy I'm in this job. That was the voice of Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, from an interview last month with ABC News business correspondent Rebecca Jarvis. In today's episode, we're going to dig into the nature of his message, that people should be happy that the creators of models such as GPT-4 are a little bit scared of what they've unleashed into the world. I'm joined by a columnist and author who's spent the last few years thinking about a past era of automation, a process that yielded him a valuable perspective when considering this moment in time. I am Brian Merchant, the tech columnist at the LA Times. Brian, you are the author of one book, The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone, and the forthcoming Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech, which I understand is to come out this fall. Can you give my listeners just a preview of of what that is? Perhaps we'll have you back on to talk about the book. Yeah, it's a history um, and sort of modern recontextualizing of the Luddite movement and why workers sort of rose up uh, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution to sort of target the automating technology of the day. There's so much to learn about uh, this moment now, especially when we have generative text and imaging systems and all this talk of AI, uh, and it can, which I think we're going to get into today, all the, some of the, the, the hype and the technological determinism uh, can sort of get out of control as it did back then. And uh, sort of the entrepreneurial elite, I call them in the book, sort of the those who not just your everyday startup founders, but sort of the those with the most power, the most capital to sort of make things happen can kind of push through changes to the way that uh, we work and to livelihoods in ways that aren't necessarily democratic and aren't necessarily always healthy. So uh, yeah, it's coming out in September and it explores a lot of what have turned out to be rather pertinent themes, I think. I've, I've been writing the book for five years, so now that it's it's coming out this year, it's kind of like, well, it's a good time to talk about some of this stuff. Well, perhaps that does double duty, both gives us a preview of what to look forward to in the book, but also may explain a little bit of your perspective on uh, some of the goings-on uh, in Silicon Valley at the moment. Um, I reached out because you wrote this column, Afraid of AI, the startups selling it want you to be. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you kind of look a little bit what's essentially kind of doublespeak from these companies. Can you explain the the premise of the column? Yeah. Uh, so it's been a few months now since uh, OpenAI especially and sort of the other AI and text uh, image gen- and image generators have sort of kind of risen to prominence and have kind of commanded the spotlight. And I, I sort of 
notice this theme. I, a lot of people have noticed this theme that's that's uh, sort of omnipresent, which is that you know these AIs uh, are poised to sort of remake society in ways great and small. And not only that, but there has this real apocalyptic dimension to it. That just that it's so powerful that we have to you know scramble to grapple with it in every in every capacity. You know, the the founder of OpenAI and the CEO Sam Altman is is out there saying that you know he's a a little bit afraid of of his own technology but then at the same time he's comfortable you know offering enterprises and individuals and one of the biggest tech monopolies uh in history the uh full access to it for a price right the 10 billion dollar microsoft deal that he's infused chat gpt onto bing uh there's all kinds of different sort of services and offerings that enterprises and uh, and, and personal individual users can do from premium on up it started to seem a little bit less like, oh, we're dealing with a social problem here and more like we've cultivated an air where there is a clear business imperative, right? Where if you don't get on board with this sort of AI, uh, you know, phenomenon, then you stand to lose out. So it became very clear because this is, you know, it seems new because the technology is new. It is it is new. The technology is new. It does new and cool things. But in a historical context, you can look back time and again and see when there's sort of an automation frenzy uh, or an automation craze. And this is ultimately sort of what the business use case is, right? It's going to let you automate email, marketing emails. It's going to let you automate copywriting. It's going to let you automate a bunch of stuff that businesses want to do to cut down on labor costs that people might want to do to cut down on labor costs. But in the past, you've had these big sort of computerization booms, uh, mechanization booms, automation booms, and it's often fueled by by this kind of, you know, this kind of fear. This the robots are coming to take your jobs. Automation is coming. You know, Congress had big hearings on the rise of automation. Uh, you know, over fifty years ago, and it was the same kind of thing. And this has the same effect. It spurs businesses to want to adopt the technology, whether or not they know it works, whether or not there's a great use case for it. Um, it's a great sort of business to business enterprise driver. So it, it can convince a lot of sort of the middle, middle management layer to, to get on board with this. And that started to seem to me, again, as you said up top, I, I don't know whether it's conscious fully or not. I think there is a great sort of investigative profile to be done at, around some of these conversations that might have been having. I don't know if anyone's inside of OpenAI may be uncomfortable with some of the things that are being said internally, or if you can paint a picture of where this started to become strategic, more like, oh, what have we created? Have we created Frankenstein's monster? And or maybe or maybe it's like, well, what if we start things out as a nonprofit and we start building this up quietly, piece by piece, as OpenAI did? And then, you know, when we are ready to start selling it, we have all of this credibility and authority. Again, these are questions I can't quite answer, but I do, as I say in the piece, it has worked out that way, right? Now they stand at this position of great credibility and authority with all things AI. Uh, they look like experts, not just business people, uh, which they very much are. So they are able to sort of command and steer the conversation in ways that they otherwise would not be able to. You focus on Sam Altman, uh, comments he's made recently declared that he was uh, a little bit scared of the technology that he's helping to build. Comments from OpenAI's chief scientist, uh, Ilya Sutskever, who said, at some point, it will be quite easy if one wanted 
to cause a great deal of harm uh, with the models that he himself is building. There's a little bit of a kind of, I don't know, dark side kind of mentality with this, almost like a feeling like, you know, you don't want to kind of touch the dark side, uh, the power of the dark side, but really you maybe, maybe you do. Right. Well, you at least want to try it, right? You want to try it out. Like you want to even, you know, Luke Skywalker gets a little bit mad and he want, you know, and he, then he realizes the true power of, you know, that, that he could unleash. So it's certainly has that, as I say in the column, like the benefits are twofold. One, it's sort of, you know, they, they did see these incredible adoption or, or uh, user rates for the, you know, one of the fastest growing startups by some of the metrics, depending on how much validity you want to lend those. But there's no denying the fact that they generated a huge amount of interest in this. And yeah, it's part of it is driven by that sort of scary ethos. Like, yeah, it's scary. Could this change the world? Who doesn't want to try the thing that can change the world, even if it's, you know, or maybe especially if it's if it's powerful and and, and potentially bad. But then again, that fear also feeds into the more sort of uh, mundane, you know, kind of business imperative that I was talking about for the fear of missing out. Right. You don't want to you don't want to be the one left holding the bag who hasn't, you know, had the AI automate all of your services and all of a sudden your competitors are. So, yeah, and I do think, you know, at this point, they have to be aware of what they're doing to some extent. And they understand at least there's a bit of a feedback loop, right? Like, oh, we make this apocalyptic pronouncement and then we get another news cycle and then we're on 60 minutes and then, oh, okay. Uh, And then Elon Musk is saying it must be stopped, which only sort of feeds the whole, the whole loop even further. I mean, to some extent, you could see this as being a part of a kind of strategy just to raise capital, just to say, you know, we need more money. Uh, in order both to develop these technologies and also to do so safely, you can trust us. You know, we're we're considering the possible side effects, the possible unintended consequences, and if we have an appropriate amount of capital in the bank, we will steward these technologies forward in a socially conscious way. Right. Yeah. No. That you they could still they could make that claim. I think that's at, again at this point where that's we would we, you and I, sort of people who are critiquing or trying to analyze what's going on, aren't the ones that aren't, aren't the tar- target audience, uh, the target audience for this apocalypticism. Uh, but, and you know, I, I think that that's kind of a bad argument because we're still, it's asking us to trust them to be those stewards right at also the moment where not only do they have more, uh, more deals in 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 the cooker more 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 capital from things like the microsoft deal more ability and capacity to 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 earn even more but they're taking all these things private now chat gpt4 is suddenly too scary to be uh seen by public eyes where it could be you know all these incredible harms could be done with it you could still use it you know for for $20 a month or whatever but you can't you know you can't see what's actually going on anymore uh so as OpenAI is kind of retreating from its sort of mission of being open and democratic. It's sort of doubling down on this, but we still get to be the stewards, trust us to be the stewards. So yeah, if it's what you're saying to try to get another round of capital, which I'm sure they could at this point, uh, everybody wants a piece of a piece of them. Uh, but also, yeah, who knows what other sort of deals uh, like the Microsoft deal uh, are being structured right now and where they're, you know, being courted or seeking to in- in- infuse the technology into for sort of those higher margin rates. So we are a couple of skeptics, but let's perhaps, uh, you know, 
be adversarial, even with our own point of view. Um, yeah. There's another argument, which is that OpenAI has been more transparent, perhaps, than any other startup in trying to lay out the potential downsides of the technology that it is developing. It has authored, or I should say co-authored in some cases with willing academics, a variety of papers that have looked at everything from possible use cases around mis- and disinformation on through to the impact on labor. Um, it has you know, gone out of its way to go into the public, into the, you know, the spotlight and try to explain the dangers. I mean, on some level, isn't this what we want tech firms to do? I mean, it took, I don't know, what, two decades and lots of congressional subpoenas for social media executives to finally come kicking and screaming uh, to the table and explain what they understand about the harms that they're causing? Yeah. I mean, I think all that is true, again, up until a point where I think, you know, even some of the folks, I, I even Elon Musk was, or at least if he didn't get a heads up beforehand, even he feigned surprise on social media that all of a sudden this thing that was founded as a nonprofit had, you know, it restructured in, I think, 2019 to become a, a capped corporation where, you know, the um, amount of revenue it can earn it has some still quite high cap. But, you know, I, I, I do think that to to some extent what you're saying, like it's sure it should get credit. But then what we have to ask ourselves, why the change now? Like why now is it when it stands at just at the moment where they stand to start making the most amount of money, when they're unleashing the most apocalyptic claims, why now is it all becoming proprietary and it's no longer about democratizing AI? And now it's about sort of being the safely the, the safe stewards in the citadel, the only ones who can do it, the only ones who can also sort of profit from it the most. So I, you know, I do think that maybe it's an improvement. Uh, we certainly have a use case. I don't even know if the avenue would have been open to open AI to do what say Facebook did, where they they don't enjoy that level of blind trust, where it's like, oh, here, you know, here's a here's a war chest of venture capital. Just do what you want with it. I think people have all sort of kind of wised up a little bit, even, you know, even if the, the, the actual f- safeguards in place are still somewhat uh, lacking <laughs> to, to make an understatement. But yeah, I mean, it would have been, I think they're carefully managing the perception of how this is rolled out as much as they are, you know, being safeguards. And I don't want to say that none of these folks working at OpenAI are, uh, are, are sort of you know, necessarily acting maliciously. Um, I do think at this point there is the potential that they are acting recklessly. Uh, again, the, the the prospect of making a huge amount of money is an insanely motivating and distorting factor. Once that's in the water, uh, it's it's hard for different incentives to not start, you know, kicking in and 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 rolling further down the way. So yeah, I remain, if indeed. This technology is as powerful as they say it is. I'm also skeptical, intensely skeptical that it is. But if it is, then why? Why does it have to be a for-profit corporation at all? Why does it? Why do we have to move into this? Why does it have to be um, an enterprise? Sam Altman would say because you know he's a. That's just sort of his political ideology. I think that the market it will is the best place to sort of. Uh, unleash these things. I think that if we're making the comparison again to to social media in the last ten years, uh, it's been a it, it, that's been a poor environment. I think to test out 
from, you know, all these different <laughs> use cases and sort of phenomena that take root there from disinformation, from the toxicity to the exposure to harassment, all these other things. So I think that maybe, you know, having a few years to safeguard a, a transformative new technology maybe sounds good, but, you know, if it really is as transformative as they're saying, it should probably be a lot more. It should still be open. It should not have just suddenly switched into $10 billion deal with Microsoft mode. Um, again, I'm going to be more skeptical than most, but I'm taking what their claims are at face value. And if they think this thing is so dangerous, uh, then yeah, sure. Maybe introduce it into the public in some small areas. Maybe let you know academia play with it some more. Maybe uh, you could have a controlled rollout. But now all of a sudden it's like, you know, we're a research institution. Now it's on Bing where everybody with a web connection can access it. That seems like a huge leap and it's still uncontrolled with all the you know potential harms still stand to be unleashed that were unleashed with Facebook at all, you know? That's part of the issue, isn't it? That uh, Silicon Valley is all about sort of universal application, right? We want to create technologies that can change not just one sector or one market, but change the world, uh, change the way we interact with information, the way we interact with each other, the way we interact with government, the way we interact with commerce. And, you know, that seems to be very much the promise here. You know, it, it perhaps it is the case that if you had decided to roll out uh, large language models or various other technologies in particular domains uh, where perhaps there could be more guardrails or more specific uh, tuning or considerations around safety. Maybe it would be a slightly slower, but a more healthy approach. Yeah, hundred percent. Same thing. I mean, it's just, it's hard for us to imagine at this point, Silicon Valley and its sort of model of innovation looms so large that it's hard for us to picture the alternatives, but they are there. And if you you can imagine the same thing happening with social networks, with, with, with Facebook or with something that wasn't sort of unleashed, you know, into the, to the wide market with, you know, with little uh, foresight or, or advanced study into what, you know, might unfold. Um, and that's a, another pretty good comparison point. I, and I totally agree. Like that's the last 15 years of Silicon Valley, the whole sort of, you know, Andreessen software will eat the world kind of thing has been, or at least attempted to have been erected into sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where you have your, you want to do software because your margins are, uh, you can, you can have a lot higher margins if you're doing software. It's, you can sort of make it tailored to one size fits as many as possible. And that has been the, the ethos from everything from, you know, Uber and the gig economy apps uh, on through, sort of all the, the various disruptions that we've seen since then. It, it has been exactly as you said, we want it to serve as many people, the potential, uh, you know, the, the service or the, you know, who knows what, where, where the end game with open AI is. Maybe this thing will stay free. Maybe there'll be ads injected to how you use it eventually. Maybe the, maybe it'll be a series of partnerships like the Bing thing, um, which again, Bing, it's going to be sort of an, an ad driven model and there's going to be problems with that too. But again, yeah, the issue that the aim is to get it out to as many people as humanly possible. We've been down that road before very recently. So just turning around and, and, and doing it again, even if we had a few years that it appeared as though they were behaving sort of responsibly at OpenAI, it, now it kind of seems like we're back where we started again uh, with the floodgates open and now Google's in the game with Bard and, you know, and there's a, there's a constellation of other startups doing similar things with 
different uh, levels of uh, uh, interest in pursuing the ethics of, uh, of you know, where their data that they're training their systems uh, are coming from and whether or not they're using uh, artists' IP or what the potential harms are. So I, I just kind of feel like we're, if not back exactly to square one, but something close to it. Another argument that you hear from some technology leaders is despite the potential harms, it's worth it. Whatever short-term pain we may propagate onto the world with these systems is worth it in the long run. And Sam Altman himself has said these things, that abundance is right around the corner, that near-term, super intelligent AIs will solve fusion, they'll solve poverty, they'll solve you know, our problems feeding the earth's billions, uh, all of that is going to be made possible by these systems. And so whatever disruption they may bring in the near term is offset by the long-term benefits. You know, there's no way of saying definitively that it will not, but I will say that there is a, two, you know, people like to go back a hundred years and look at uh, Keynes, his uh, prediction that if current trends hold with, you know, the technological development, uh, then we were headed right for a leisure society where people will struggle to find 15 hours of work a week. Um, I think he wrote that, you know, what, like 19, well, don't, don't quote me on that. It's about a hundred years ago when, when he, when he wrote that, obviously that has not borne out hundred years before that you, when sort of the advent of the factory system, you had some of the first uh, business theorists. Uh, There's a guy named um, Andrew Err who was uh, maybe sort of the first business futurist. I, I write about him in my book too. And he sort of, he sees the the first sort of factory, major factory operations sort of rising to prominence. And he says, oh, you know, it's only a matter of time before these things are totally automated. They will be functioning like an automaton all linked together, sort of producing endless goods. And uh, so whenever there is sort of the, a new technology that stands to make a, a, a class of producers a lot of money, you will find these predictions that abundance and prosperity is right around the corner. And, you know, one thing that I look at in in, in my book about the Luddites is that yeah, you know, we were producing a lot more stuff after the Luddites sort of lost their battle against automating technologies, but they were also battling changes in the way that they lived and and worked. They weren't battling the technologies of production necessarily. They were battling sort of the onset of the factory system. Um, and, you know, economists love to say like, well, we all became more pro- prosperous afterwards. Uh, after the Industrial Revolution, you know, we're producing much more, uh, many more goods, like the cost of things dramatically fell and eventually it led to prosperity. You know, in some regards that's true there's also decades where there were child laborers getting crushed by machinery with no protections for a long time and it forever changed the way that we work uh even if you're not in a factory even if you're sort of working in an office or even if you're working remotely you are still sort of you were still working at the whims of that system that was forged then in which you were subservient to a manager, your manager is subservient to somewhere else. Factory-like organization has sort of governed how we work. If that is, you know, if we are looking at a potential, you know, change in technology that stands to sort of restructure, you know, you know, the, those social relations, I think that, you know, we want to have those conversations, you know, now we don't want to, we don't want to wait and we don't want to, Say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, uh, I trust. I, I trust you to deliver abundance to us. I trust you to sort of 
because in that in these periods where there is a new technology uh, that is taking shape, there is a lot of malleability. There's a lot of opportunity for the people deploying those technologies to sort of shape those social structures. And we have to be really conscious of that right now. Um, so I, you know, I would just say we've heard these predictions before. They never quite come true. We may sort of raise our standard of living in certain regards, but if you're at home listening to this podcast and you're maybe you're on your commute, you're a little bit stressed because you're burdened by work in much the same way that somebody was a hundred years ago, I would be very wary of the latest round of people saying this technology is going to finally do it. This is the one that's going to solve it all. One of the things that you have focused on is the labor underneath these tech firms, uh, the often low-paid individuals who are focused on rating the outputs of these systems, who are focused on you know, building data sets that are used uh, to drive classifiers that are necessary. Um, what do you make of the kind of current situation? We know even from other reporting, I'm thinking of Times, uh, Billy Perigo in particular, who looked at uh, how low-cost, low-skilled workers were employed uh, in a consultancy in uh, Africa to train classifiers for open AI, often at less than $2 an hour. You've chronicled raiders, you know, who serve the kind of Google search engine, essentially often making, you know, almost minimum wage as well here in the United States. Yep. Uh, and, you know, that's another good use of, of a technology like this or an automated technology um, is that that technology that promises to sort of do a task or accomplish it completely, uh, you know, uh, mechanistically or, uh, or, 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 or automatically is almost never, never entirely the case. I mean, you can think of it as sort of an intense de-skilling perhaps, but, uh, yeah, behind all of these searches, you know, even, even your mundane Google searches, I kind of stumbled into that story because I was looking at these raiders who had been, you know, working for, for Google or for, uh, contractor that works exclusively with Google to sort of rate the search, you know, regular Google search results. And he he mentioned to me in, in our interview that he's like, yeah, you know, a few months ago, these really sort of wild sort of results started coming down the pike. And it became pretty clear pretty quickly that it was that it was the new barred results that it, that, that he was testing out. Um, so, it, you know, there, there, there's a lot there, you know, that he's also making sure he has a very various points in his career done, you know, basically done content moderation to make sure that the search engine sort of deprioritizes horrific results and make sure that nobody sees them. And there's starting to be some of that with, with Bard as well, because these, you know, AI, they've been fine tuned to some extent, but they're still producing quote unquote hallucinations. They're still pumping out a lot of weird stuff. And some of that nasty stuff, you know, we there's a team of human people have to try to work around the clock to make sure that it gets edited out or deprioritized or, you know, thumbs down so that ordinary users don't uh, revolt, uh, you know, when they release this stuff to the masses. So, yeah, there's an immense amount of invisible human labor that's that's making these things possible and, you know, will be for the foreseeable future. Again, I'm reluctant ever to say like, we can never automate all of the, this away because maybe someday, you know, you, you never know, you know, I'll get, there's the benefit of that. But again, to look back 200 years, they say, oh, we're going to automate this weaving work in the factory. You know, you, yeah, like, yeah, they can do it so that now it takes 
four uh, now 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 one machine can do the work of four people and do it worse, but you still need a child overseer to make sure the wheels cranking and in case it gets caught. And to, so you're kind of you it's con it's it's constantly sort of a, a case where automation promises the human is sort of the ghost in the machine. You invoke Tenet Gebru, uh, who said one of the biggest harms of large language models is caused by claiming that LLMs have human competitive intelligence. I mean, that seems to be the real promise that these language models are going to take us in the direction of machines that are competitive, if not superior to humans, even if that's something that is you know, far out uh, and perhaps years from now. Um, that seems to be the immediate promise of these companies. That is what Sam Altman is promising us, that these language models are a step towards that. Um, and that that is is ultimately the great promise of uh, open AI. I don't know. Do you buy it? It plugs into sort of what we talked about at the top of the show, like that promise slash fear is doing a lot of the motivating work here. It's, you know, stirring the pot. I think that there are at least a large number of, of, of these founders and um, domain experts that are true believers. I have no doubt about that. I will circle back to the same thing I said about these the, the previous promises of full automation. To me, I think the, the AGI is at least so you know look 10 years from now we might we might come back here and, and there might be a much more convincing, much more uh, capable, uh, software program that can that can that can do a lot of things with less of our prompting, less of our prompt engineering, or or whatever. Uh, it's going to be a same. It's going to be a similar variation on what's here now, sort of confined by the guardrails that we give it. We have, and maybe this is a good note to end things on: is that so much of the conversation involves sort of sacrificing human uh, capacity or agency to uh, to these machines. It's what happens when it finally outruns us and exceeds us. And the, the, the important thing to underline is it never has to. We are human beings that are completely capable of, of establishing guardrails, parameters, socially, how do we want this thing to, to, to interact with our society? We can answer those questions. It may be at this point, may be difficult because there's so many different companies and, and actors, but it's not impossible. Throughout history, we have come together and made decisions about how we want a, a technology, powerful as it may be, uh, to coexist with with our with our societies it you know we have a host of options to the six month pause even a lot of people thought it was silly a lot of people you know kind of there's backlash to to the call from musk and 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 marcus and and wozniak but what that's on the table now just pause pausing this technology there are real stakeholders in that and if the government or you know whoever else wanted to speak up for that, that is an option. We can do that. We can say, let's pause this for six months. There's no need to sort of hand over our agency and say, well, this thing is looming, you know, let the companies do whatever they want. It's all just going to kind of wind up with some sort of Skynet or another. Uh, again, not the case. We have lots of opportunities for input. We can restrict, we can say no, we can say press pause, we can, we can, we can steer the course. We we are the agents here, not the machines. It's still 
a text generator. It's still a, an image generator. It may be a very complex and very powerful one. It's still subject to our whims, not the other way around. Brian Merchant, author of the forthcoming Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. I hope you'll come back and tell us about the book when it comes out. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.